Thanks, Ellie. Cheery passage, right? But very fitting for where we're going to be this morning. If you turn to Mark chapter 7, that's where we're going to be studying, continuing our study through uh, this gospel account. And the reason I asked uh, Ellie to read that passage is because the focus of that short two-verse section is on obedience rather than lip service. The obedience of the heart rather than just doing what looks right or what seems to be the right thing to do or what everyone would expect a Christian to do or someone who follows God in King Saul's case to do. Remembering as we look at Mark chapter 7 this morning as we kind of set the stage for what we're going to be studying in the coming weeks, Mark's uh, gospel is intended to be presented to the Greco-Roman world, and at times we kind of see that come to the forefront with the way that he not only teaches and and explains and shows what Jesus uh, did in his lifetime, but the, the accounts that he has and the arrangement of them is very much arranged in such a way to be presentable to a Roman world. You'll notice if you read the Gospel of Mark as compared to many of the other Gospels that um, there's not as much Jewish phraseology, and that's because this was meant to be presented uh, to Gentiles. And so as you're looking at this text this morning, you're going to see that there's kind of a shift in the winds, so to speak, of how Mark's going to be um, teaching and sharing and and explaining uh, what Jesus is doing, obviously getting his account from Peter. And so as we look at this, His teachings in chapters uh, 7 and 8 are going to be focused on Jesus' interactions at the very beginning of chapter 7 with the scribes and the Pharisees, and then it's going to do kind of like a little overview of some of the teachings of Jesus um, that would very much minister and speak to uh, the Greco-Roman world. And we'll see that begin in verse 24. But before we get there, no, I'm not going to take you through the whole chapter this morning. Before we get there, we have this interaction that's about to happen right at the onset of chapter 7. And the Pharisees and scribes have another problem with Jesus, and they've had problems before. They've had issues with Jesus before. The last time Mark recorded an interaction between Jesus and the scribes was in chapter 3, where they said Jesus was possessed by Satan. I don't know if you've challenged Jesus recently, but that's a pretty harsh one. And the scribes actually challenge the authority of Jesus and say he casts out demons by the power of demons. He casts out demons by the Lord of demons. It goes without saying that as the Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem gather around Jesus once more in Mark chapter 7, they're up to more no good. They're going to challenge his authority in a whole new way, but the way that they challenge it this time is a little bit differently, and we'll see that as we get into the text. So let's look at Mark chapter 7, and this will be a very interesting look at the focus of the Pharisees and the scribes and how Jesus addresses them. Mark 7, 1 begins this way. The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him. They observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs they've received and keep like the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, and dining couches. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands? Originally, for the Jewish people, the law meant two things, and these were very important. 
The law first and foremost meant the Ten Commandments. When you would talk about the law, you would think about the Ten Commandments. And the second thing, there's a slide for this, Carson. Secondly, what you'll see is the Pentateuch. And we, we understand the Pentateuch to be um, the first five books of the Bible. Okay, the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. The Torah would be the law. And we understand that when they were talking about the law, originally, they would be talking about the Ten Commandments and the Pentateuch. Now, in the fourth and fifth centuries before Christ, there was formed this class of legal experts that we know as the scribes. And what the scribes sought to do was rather than emphasizing the Ten Commandments and the Pentateuch, the law so God, they weren't content with what they contained because they weren't enough. And so they wanted to add moral principles. They had what we would describe as a passion for definition. And so they started adding all these explanatory things to the law. So the law says this, but in this situation, we have to add this to it. And the scribes wanted the commandments in the Pentateuch amplified, expanded, and broken down until they issued thousands and thousands of little rules and regulations governing every possible action and every possible situation in life. They were the original micromanagers. Microgemers. These are... (laughs) These rules and regulations weren't written down. That's what's interesting about them. In the the fourth century prior to Christ's coming, they weren't written down at that time. They were written down long after the time of Jesus. And so they were kept in what we would call oral law. The oral law is the tradition of the elders. That's what they're referring to. These were laws that were spoken and handed down through being taught. Not the law given by God on Sinai, but rather these thousands of little additions were the extraneous actions of men seeking to define every microscopic action of people's lives. Sounds like fun. The elders you see referred to here when they're talking about the traditions of the elders doesn't mean in this phrase the officials of the synagogue. Rather, it means the ancients. It's the great legal experts of the old days. If you're familiar with some Hebrew literature, you might recognize the names Hillel and Shammai. But much later in the third century after Christ, a summary of these rules And these regulations was made, and they actually wrote it down, and we know that to be the Mishnah. If you're familiar with knowing the Mishnah, that is the oral law that was written down sometime after Christ. So I thought about how to talk about this. That's just the, 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 you know, the introductory, this is what they're talking about. I thought about bringing a bowl up here and actually ceremonially showing you how to wash. And then we could all do it for our cups, for our coffee cups and all that stuff. But you guys... In order to save the mess, and there really isn't a benefit to it, as we'll go on to see, allow me to simply state this. This hand washing, cup washing, pitcher washing, kettle washing, dining couch washing, none of it has to do with physical cleanliness. By the way, have you washed your dining couch lately? That's all I want to know. It's like, that's something we should send out in the church mailer. Like, have you ceremonially washed your dining couch? (laughs) Mine needs a regular wash. Guys, none of this has to do with physical cleanliness. This isn't talking about physical cleanliness. As we read further in this text, remember, this is ceremonial. This is ceremonial. It all has to do with traditions of men. This is not something that God gave to the people to do. It's something that was added to the law and then expected for them to do. As we read further in this text, we need to remember that. It all has to do with the traditions of men. Man-made constraints. 
that God never gave to his people as laws. It's important to note that because Jesus states clearly in Matthew 5, 17, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. He says, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Some people will get confused with that and say, but didn't Jesus like come in and just start like trashing Jewish laws? It's like, no, not at all. Jesus kept the law of God. Jesus showed us not only what the law of God means, but he fulfilled it. And when Jesus challenges situations like this, we should take note. Because if you think that we're not creatures of tradition or habit, you're crazy. We are so habitual. You guys sit in the same place on Sunday morning often. It's almost like you have your name inscribed on the seat. And you're like, there's nothing wrong with sitting there. No, I'm just saying we're creatures of habit. Sometimes, and we get offended. Have you not gotten offended when someone sat in your chair at church? Don't you know? Can't you see the imprint? That's me. I mean, like, you know that's me. Look, it fits perfectly, right? You guys, that's why it's so important that we define the law of God apart from the traditions of men. How many, I actually have to ask this, how many of you seen Fiddler on the Roof? Okay, a little, probably a little better than half. That's about 50%. Okay, this joke, this is going to sort of land. So, you guys, we become so much, if you're familiar with that film, like the main character, Tevya. Shouting tradition as a Jewish man into the sky like, tradition! He's like all about tradition, right? These are our traditions. But what's hilarious is he so comedically says at one point, a fiddler on the roof, you may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. <laughs> and then, we, if, and, and I always laugh at that part, but then sometimes I miss what he says like directly after it. And he goes, but it's tradition. It's like, you may ask why, how we got all this. He's like, I don't know, but it's tradition. This is what we do. You ever been in a place so long that you just habitually will do something like that and believe that it has value just because it's what is always done? To the scribes and the Pharisees, these rules and regulations were not just what was done. They took it a step further. This was the essence of religion. This was the essence of religion. To observe them was to please God. To break them was to sin. If you broke the tradition of the elders, you were in sin. You weren't just renegade. You were a problem. You were to be convicted for that. The traditions of the elders, however, were not the laws given by God. Thus, when the Pharisees and scribes challenged Jesus with his disciples' lack of obedience to these laws of men, the disciples are just living freely with the Lord. And here comes the traditions of men, right? How dare you not ceremonially wash your dining couch? So Jesus responds firmly with the truth of what's in their hearts. And I love this because Jesus lovingly rebukes. We need to remember that. In a rebuke, when we rebuke, oftentimes we do it mean-spirited. Like, well, you're being rebuked. I need to be mean about that. Jesus was always loving, but he was also not afraid to rebuke. And so he says this to them, and this hits heavy. Imagine God saying this to you. Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain teaching as doctrines, human commands. 
abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. He also said to them, you have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your, tra- your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mo- your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is Corban, that is an offering devoted to God. You no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down, and you do many other similar things. Jesus doesn't hold back. That's very offensive, if you didn't catch it. There's a fundamental split here between those who see religion as ritual, as ceremonial rules and regulations, and those who see religion to be loving God and loving people. Jesus is making a clear distinction. That's why he uses the example of honoring your father and mother. Because they're letting that get pushed aside so that they can keep to ceremonial hand washing. Jesus calls them hypocrites. And I think that we hear that maybe a little bit differently in our modern English than what it actually means in the text. We're pretty close. Is it, is it a bit insulting? Sure. Yeah, it's a bit insulting. Because here's what Jesus is saying. The word has this interesting and revealing history. It begins by meaning simply one who answers. It goes on to mean one who answers in a set dialogue or a set conversation. That means that's what you would call an actor. Actor in the ancient world were hypocrites. They were presenting a character that they actually weren't. They were acting. So now you're starting to catch a little bit of where we get our understanding of hypocrite from. Finally, the word goes on to mean not simply an actor on the stage, but one who that the Jesus will see are white tombs without any sincerity behind it at all. The essence of what Jesus, when he says you are washed they're hypocrites. And there is no way around it. That's exactly what it is. Quoting from Isaiah, Jesus calls out the heart of the Pharisees and scribes, which is more concerned with traditions and self rather than caring for those in need, honoring God with words, but not actions. They want to say the right things. They even want to look like they're doing the right things, but in reality, their heart is far, far away. And they're teaching human commands as doctrine rather than the word of God, rather than what God actually said. They're teaching human commands. Notice verses eight and nine. This is powerful. Abandoning, Jesus says, the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. You abandon what God said to uphold what you have created. He also said to them, you have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your tradition. You invalidate what God says. You abandon what God says. These are never words that we want to hear amongst religious people. These are words we never want to hear amongst the church. You've abandoned God. You have raised up for yourself traditions that have greater value. You invalidate his commands. Their love for human tradition was, has caused them to abandon him. And the principle holds true as Jesus taught about money in Matthew six twenty four again from the Sermon on the Mount. No one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And the principle holds true in this. You cannot worship religion and worship God. Did you catch that? You cannot worship religion and worship God. Your worship of God should produce healthy religion. 
but your worship of religion will produce idolatry. It's a dangerous, dangerous paradigm. This is what happens when we value our rhythms, our goals, our desires, our politics, anything more than God and what he has commanded us to do. This is what happens when we love anything more than him. We become idol-making factories. Taking something that might be even helpful, even something within the church that's helpful and that could be helping people, making it ultimate, and thereby creating an idol. As the late Tim Keller said, an idol is usually a good thing that we make ultimate. So often we look at our lives and we go, well, this thing isn't necessarily bad. Well, it's an atom and object. It's amoral. It's not immoral. It's something that you could use for good or for bad, but because you value it so much, you've made it an idol. What is it in our lives that we've made idols? What is it in our lives that if God took away from you, you might turn on him? You're like, oh, how dare you say that? This is reality. This is who we are. What is it that God could take away from you that you would turn on him and say, how dare you? You can't be good. I have to have that. Jesus points out a specific way. They've used their their traditions for self rather than to honor the law, and he talks about parents. This is important. He goes to Moses, remember, God's law. And he says, honor your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother whatever benefit you might have received from me, is Corbin, that is an offering devoted to God, you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. What's this idea with this? Jesus reveals to them their lack of loving care for their families. The law given by God mandates that his people care for their parents, and in this case, especially when they're aging and in need of their children's provision. He says, be loving, God says, be loving towards your parents. Take care of them. Look after them. To explain the idea of Corbin as referred to here, the Pharisees and scribes would give their listeners permission to say that they didn't have to give aid to their parents because what they would have given to them as provision had been promised to God. Just tell them that, well, I would give you this sack of money, but I promised it to God. So I can't give it to you. In the meantime, I'm going to gain some interest off it. Right? Later, I'll give it to God. You're like, that's mean. That's just downright mean and evil. Yeah, exactly. That's what Jesus is saying. What you're using the tradition of elders to do is benefit yourself and give you an excuse to not be loving to others, to not give what you have away. You could continue to benefit from what you possessed and you had an excuse to not give it away because it was Corbin. I promised this to God eventually, so I can't give it to you. This is just one way. Remember, Jesus says there are many other similar things that you have done as well. There was other situations. This is just the one that he uses as a, an example. Sorry, I can't help you. I've promised to give to God what I would have given to you. It's the opposite of what Jesus taught. For example, if you look at Luke chapter 6, verses 30 through 36, Jesus teaches that we should not only give to those who love us, but that we ought to give to and bless our enemies. Here's a challenging text for us to chew on. Give to everyone who asks you, and from someone who takes your things, don't ask for them back. 
Just as you want others to do for you, do the same for them. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do what's good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do what is good and lend expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. For he is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful just as your father also is merciful. I think we have a rich young ruler complex sometimes when it comes to this. Lord, I've jumped through all the hoops. Look at my church attendance. Look at how much private time I spend in the morning. I am rhythmic about that Bible reading time. You know, when people ask me my opinion, I don't even tell them my opinion. I say, well, let's see what God has to say. Is all of that bad? No. But Jesus says that it's easy to love those who love us back. And he says, you know how you're going to prove that you're my disciples? When you love your enemies. Are we loving our enemies? Are you giving away without asking to be repaid? Are we merciful even when we're not shown mercy? That's the mark of a Christian. That's the mark of a believer in Christ. This is how we're called to love. It's not doing all the things that look right. Here's the thing. So many of the things we do, those are good things. I think you should do them. But if that's what you think is making you righteous, you're wrong and I'm wrong. Our devotional life is not making us righteous. Jesus makes us righteous. Because while we were dead in our trespasses and sin, Christ died for us then. And he and he alone can save us. Everything that we do is a response of love from a posture of humility. That's what we're called to do. We ought to pray for each other. But church, if that's become an excuse to not physically help someone, you know what I'm talking about. How many times do we look at somebody who has a need and we say, I'll pray for you? Should you pray for them? Please. Should you pray for them? Yes, you should pray for them. But how are they going to be fed if you do not feed them? And how are they going to have a drink of water if you don't give them one? And how are they going to be clothed if you don't give them clothing? If you didn't know, this really irked James. Read his letter. He talks about it a bit. You guys, we cannot use spiritual phrases and lip service to do the work of God in this world. We have to live like Jesus. We have to be conformed into his image. We were not saved from sin and death by the shed blood of Jesus so that we could talk a good talk. He didn't save us from our sins so that we could say the right words. He saved us from our sins so that we could live a new life, so that we could be a new creation. He did not save us to be anything less than that. 
We were saved from our wretchedness so that we could be conformed into the image of Christ himself and dwelt by his spirit, empowered by him to love our enemies and give without expectation of return so that the world will see how great our God is and they will give glory to him as he is glorified in heaven as all the heavens shout of the praise and the wonder and the power of our God. So our lives should scream this out, amen? It's not about what we say. How do we live? I am not interested in transform ministries saying all the right things. I am interested in this church coming together as the body of Christ and living a life that looks just like his. And before you go, Whoo! Jesus was the most humble about that. Jesus died on a cross. Jesus was the most humble man who ever lived. The Apostle John urges us, church, to follow Christ's teaching. And not that of the Pharisees and scribes in 1 John 3.18. He says, little children, let us, love in, not, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. Let it be seen. Let the impact of the church in this world be felt. If your only religiosity is happening right here for an hour and a half, let me very lovingly rebuke every single one of us for that. Enough. This community does not need to see us gather in this building for an hour and a half every week. That's not what this community needs. What this community needs is to see a body that comes together to rejoice once a week or several times a week, as much as you want to come visit me. And we rejoice and we get excited, we get filled up, we get filled with his joy, and we go out and we live that life in the midst of darkness because if darkness is out there, then the light needs to be right in the middle of it. We need to stop running away from the darkness of this world and planting ourselves right in the middle of it because we're called to be in this world and not of it. We are not called to flee from this. We were called unto this. God planted us here for a reason. And I cannot tell you guys how disappointed I've been in the past, and I never want it to be said about us, that Christians are fleeing dark areas. That we're leaving the people who need the Lord, and we're hiding out together in little communities of light. Let's hide away. Let's get away. Let's get to a place where we're more comfortable because that's where the church thrives. Gathering together as this is important. But was the church called to hide from the world or to be planted right in the midst of that darkness and let your light shine? Or as Spurgeon would say, as soon as you have the light of Christ, run away and lend somebody else that light. Summoning the crowd again. Jesus tells them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. Nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. I'm going to read that again. Nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now, if you're kind of like, hmm, or huh, when he went into the house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him about the parable. It's interesting because if you read the other gospel accounts, it was Peter. Mark omits that. I think he's preferring Peter in this sense. But regardless, he's one of the disciples, and he comes to him. says, would you explain this parable to us? 
Jesus says, are you also as lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated. Now remember, he's talking about the traditions of elders, but this really applies to us too. He continues in verse 19, and and Mark adds a little thing here. Thus he declared all foods clean. Yes. Verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. Jesus just turned this whole thing upside down, didn't he? Jesus is attacking a system which puts rules and regulations before the claim of human need. He declares that nothing that goes into a person can possibly cause defilement, for it is received only into the body which rids itself of it in the normal, physical way. No Jew ever believed that. This is unheard of to them. Orthodox Jews don't believe it today. Leviticus 11 has a long list of animals that are unclean and may not be eaten. Just how seriously this was taken can be seen from many incidents in Maccabean times alone. At the time, the Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes was determined to root out the Jewish faith. One of the things he demanded is that Jews should eat pork. He's trying to root out their faith. He's trying to destroy their faith and destroy their belief system. So he insists that they eat pork and they died by the hundreds because of it. They refused. Reading the stories of the Maccabean revolt provides a helpful picture of just what the Jews were willing to go through to avoid being defiled by food. And against this, Jesus makes this revolutionary statement. And he says, it's not what's going into you that's defiling you. It's not what you're eating. To paraphrase, it's your wretched heart. That's what's destroying you. That's what's making you unclean. He was wiping out at one stroke the laws for which Jews had suffered and died. No wonder the disciples were so amazed. Wait a minute, we died for this stuff. We died for these food laws. We died on that hill. And what is Jesus saying? Jesus is so bold and so loving and so firm as to walk up and look us right in the eyes and say, you're dying on the wrong hill. How many hills we die on that we shouldn't be dying on? How many of us are fighting over things we shouldn't be fighting for? It's a personal challenge and it's a church challenge. In effect, Jesus was saying on this subject matter that things cannot be either unclean or clean in any religious sense of the term. Only people can be really defiled. And what defiles people are their own actions, which are the product of their own hearts. You are not being defiled by the world that you're living in. You are being defiled by your own heart committing sin and carried out through your actions. You ever be in the midst of a scene? You ever been in the midst of a scene where you realize, I don't belong here as a Christian? And it just took you over like venom. (laughs) You know, you start like freaking out. You're like, you know, like I'm just turning into this person. It's just like all these other people. That ever happened to you? 
Sorry for the sound effects, but that's exactly what I was thinking. Did that ever happen to you? When is it that we start becoming like the people we hang out with? It's when our hearts, right? It's when our hearts start to give in and start to entertain the sin, and then our actions follow suit. Now, it's true we shouldn't be only associating with things of this world, but I tell you what, some of the most powerful ministry I've ever ever seen happen in my life happened when I was doing rave party ministry in Southern California. When I was helping drag kids out who were overdosing on drugs, and I was in the midst of scenes where people were doing things that were so horrible, I'd never describe to you what they were doing. And they were so desperate and they were so broken. I had no desire to be like them. What I wanted to do was show them the hope that was in Christ. And by his strength, we saw a lot of kids get saved. Because the light went into the midst of the darkness. And the Lord used it for his glory. Jesus is saying that neglecting to wash your dining couch ceremonially is not defiling you. What's defiling you is your heart. This is why Mark notes in verse 19 that Jesus declared all foods clean. Because as Jesus says in verse 20, it's what comes out of you that defiles you. Notice this, you guys. This is important. And this is important for all of us to really think about. I've been meditating on this all week. Defilement, sin, doesn't begin with my actions. Actions are results. Actions are results of what's happening in the heart. For from within, out of people's hearts, flow all these things, Jesus says. This is an indictment against the religious leaders of his time. Actions are results, guys. These are the ones that he called hypocrites, pretending to be righteous, and yet they pretended to be so righteous, and they were telling people not to help their parents. Essentially, to live for self, be fake. Pretending to be righteous and yet within their hearts was all manner of evil. How much of the list of sins that Jesus quotes at the end of this section could be applied to the Pharisees alone from the biblical record? Much of it. They had so much evil in their hearts. They held to their traditions so firmly. They were so stubborn, they didn't even care when it came to murdering Jesus. You don't think your sin will lead you to do heinous things? Let it live long enough. You let it live long enough, your actions are going to follow it. We could attribute most of those sins to the scribes and the Pharisees in verses 21 through 22. That's rattling. How many of them live within the church today unchallenged? How much pride do we see that goes unchecked? As I look at this text, how much slander? Right? You're like, my pastor doesn't murder anybody. (laughs) That's a true statement. You can say that. Does he slander? Is he greedy? Is he prideful? Is he envy? Sometimes we think we've got this Christian life down because we know how to dress. 
because we know how to look on Sunday. That's not the answer. The question is this, have we forgotten how to live? Have we forgotten that our hearts are what matter and that our actions will follow what's happening in our hearts? Someone once said, the mind can be convinced, but the heart must be won. I've seen that to be very true. The heart, when it's won, gets the mind. But it doesn't work the other way around. You can be taught something in your mind and your heart may not go with it. This is a challenge to every person in this room, myself included, that we would look deeply into our hearts and examine them. There's a difference between recognizing who Jesus is and receiving him. Please hear that. There's a difference between recognizing who he is and receiving him. There is a difference between calling him Lord and him being my Lord. I can look at Jesus and say, oh yeah, Jesus is Lord. Is Jesus Lord of everything that I am? It's a very different thing. How many of us are seeking a better form of godliness rather than the power of God within us? How many of us are seeking to have a better form, to look at better, rather than being filled with who Jesus is? I believe Jesus is asking every one of us, challenging us with his word. Who do you say I am? Who do you believe that I am? How do you live regarding who I am? Not so that we would respond with words correctly, but so that we would receive him as the Lord of our lives. So that he would have every ounce of us, so that our hands would be completely up in the air saying, I completely surrender to everything you say and everything you've called me to do. Let's go to work within our own hearts and examine. Worship team, could you come up? We need to let go of our traditions. Not that we wouldn't have any traditions. We need to let go of them. And there's a difference. I need to allow the Lord to be Lord over my traditions. I need to allow the Lord to be sovereign and to be superior to my desires and the things that I'm wanting to do. We need to choose humility. We need to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Because as Philippians chapter 2 says, we ought to adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And let me read this as we close. And there's no slide for this one, Carson, so you're off the hook. I want to read this to us as we close. Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 5, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Would you guys close your eyes with me? I just want us to listen to this. If Paul's asking us to adopt the same attitude, this is Christ's attitude. Who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, 
He emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. When he had come as a man, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him, gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, you came to save our souls. You have won our hearts with your love, with your grace. Lord, would you allow our minds to take shape around the reality that you have our heart, that you have our love, that you have our affection. Every single one of us this morning came in together and and we have priorities. We have things in our lives that you've given to us to steward, to look after, some of us to shepherd. And I think sometimes we can miss the forest for the trees because we get so focused on one aspect, one important thing that you gave us to do that we've made ultimate. Maybe there's been a desire in some of us, Lord, that that's just, it's not a bad thing to do this, or it's not a bad thing if I do that. Maybe it wasn't in the beginning, but it's become an idol. Maybe we started to worship our routine. Maybe we started to worship our possessions. Maybe we've started to worship our families. Maybe we've started to worship our work. Those are things that could be good things unless they're made ultimate. Jesus, would you convict us of that? Maybe some of us have been worshiping our own desires, our own flesh, and it's more of a latent sin issue. We have addictions that we're giving into. We have thought processes that we don't halt where they are. We, we stop taking thoughts captive. We let them run all over our heads. We don't bring them into the obedience, Jesus, of who you are and what your character is. We, we don't conform our lives to look like you anymore. Instead, we've just let every thought that pops into our head have its day. Maybe it's led to stress and anxiety. Maybe it's led to addictive sin. Maybe it's tearing us apart. Maybe there are people here, spirit you know. Maybe there are people here who are right on the brink. Jesus, be Lord of our life. Jesus, be the King of kings. Remind us of what matters most. Shake us from lethargy. Shake us from complacency. Every single one of us 
is like grass. Seems like we're doing great. We've sprung up. We're green. We're fresh. Before you know it, we're withering. In our lives, they, they come and go so quickly. Don't let us waste it. Don't let us get caught up in things that don't matter. Jesus, empower us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Set our priorities straight. Teach us to love like you. Teach us to give like you. Teach us to be firm in our faith. Give us the strength to resist the enemy. He's after. He's after our hearts. He understands that if he can work evil into our hearts, he'll get the evil actions. Lord, protect us. And I pray, God, that we would so carefully watch where we're walking, even when we think we're standing, as your word says, that we would take heed of our steps and remember that when we're tempted, that you give us the escape. You provide a way of escape. You give us the strength. We can resist the devil and he will flee. And that's because of what you have done in our lives. It's because of your power within us. Lord, awaken your church. Awaken this body of believers. Use us for your glory. Pray in Jesus' name.